Very good. Well, tonight we are continuing our series that we've begun for this, uh, the start of term four on growing and maturing apprentices. And so this week is sermon number two in that series. I'm going to pray that God would help us tonight. And can I remind you that we do have a Q&A after the message. And that means that as you're going through, if something pops into your head, you might want to jot it down on your Caring Connect card so you don't forget. Some of you have lovely memories, so you don't need to do that. And uh, I would love to take your questions at the end to make sure that we've been as clear as we can. Let me pray. Father, we thank you that you are here with us. We thank you, Father, that this ancient word is your word. Make it live tonight in our midst by your Holy Spirit, Father. Challenge and change us so we'd be more like Jesus. For we ask it in his name. Amen. All right, well, I'm, I'm wondering, this is a real kind of let's get onto it, you know, get up kind of start to the, um, the message tonight. I want you to have a look at these four things and tell me which is sadder, uh, which is sadder. Um, is it the, uh, the, the gym membership? where the person never goes, the gym membership where the person never goes. Does anyone know anyone like this? Yes, I see some hands. Fantastic. Very good. Uh, is it sadder to be going, uh, have a season pass to Wet n' Wild, uh, which is now called something else, Raging Waters or something, I think? Is it, is it worse to have a season pass to Wet n' Wild and hate the water? Or is it sadder to have a zoo pass to Taronga Zoo and be allergic to animals? Or fourthly, is it worse, sadder, to be a non-practicing Christian? To be a non-practicing Christian. Well, if it was a sad, the same person, that would indeed be very sad. <laughs> so a non-practicing Christian. What I want to say to you tonight is that the category of non-practicing Christian should be ruled out of our lingo. There should be no non-practicing Christians. Because if there are non-practicing Christians, if they're only non-practicing Christians, Christianity will die out. Do you remember what I said last week? I said Christianity is only ever one generation away from extinction. It's only ever one generation away from extinction. Because if you aren't passing on the faith, then there will be no more Christians. It's only ever one generation away from extinction. So instead of extinction, what do we need? Well, last week I said that what we need is something different. And that's what our focus is for next year. In order for the church to survive and to thrive, we need to be growing and maturing apprentices. And that's our focus for the next year. Growing because there are so many people who are out there who aren't in here yet, so we need more apprentices. And maturing apprentices so that those of us who are here are growing deeper and deeper in our knowledge and love and practice of Jesus. Growing and maturing apprentices. That's our focus for next year. Well, I'm wondering if you're a, under the age of 18 here, okay? If you're under the age of 18 here, I see that hand, Maria, I'm sure that's correct. Under the, hand of, uh, under the age of 18. Does anyone know who this is if you're under the age of 18? Uh, Dylan? Muhammad Ali, yes. Does anyone know his other name, which I got called out this morning? Yes? Clay, Cassius Clay, okay. Uh, so this guy is really famous for boxing, right? And uh, he said a lot of things, but one of the things that he said, particularly when you look at this photo, he said something about himself. Does anyone know what he said? That, that's really helpful because that, that's what I've got up on the screen. There we go. Fantastic. He said, I am the greatest. He said, I am the greatest. So heavyweight champion, dominating fighter, incredibly cl clever with his words. He, he was, in, in many respects, 
the greatest in that particular field. And when you're the greatest, what do you do? You draw and, and focus attention where? On yourself, right? I am the greatest. Well, I want you to be surprised as you see what happens in the passage that was just read for us tonight by Tim. Come with us. We're in John chapter 1, and I'm looking at verse 35. It starts there and it says, The next day, John was there again with two of his disciples. Now, the question is, who is John? John is not the person who this book is named after. John's gospel. It's not the writer of the gospel. It's John the Baptist. John the Baptist, who was Jesus' cousin. And uh, John had become really famous in Israel. In fact, we know that he must be famous because uh, it says he was there with two of his disciples. We'll keep reading in verse 36. Uh, When he saw Jesus passing by, he said, look, the Lamb of God. When the two disciples heard him say this, they followed Jesus. Turning around, Jesus saw them following and asked, what do you want? They said, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? Come, he replied, and you will see. So they went and saw where he was staying, and they spent that day with him. It was about four in the afternoon. Now, here's the really interesting thing. Like I said, John was famous. Uh, There were literally people coming out from Jerusalem and the whole area of Judea. They were coming out into the wilderness. They were getting by the Jordan River, and then they were being baptized for their sins. And John was speaking out. I mean, You've heard the phrase, speaking truth to power? Have you heard that? He's calling out King Herod, and he's saying, King Herod, you've done the wrong thing by taking your brother's wife. He, he is a firebrand in the society, okay? And he's out there, got this huge crowd. And yet what John does is he points to somebody else. He says, that person who's coming, I'm not even worthy to untie his sandals. What's remarkable I think, is that it takes a pretty humble leader to point to one greater than you, right? John the Baptist is a leader of a religious movement, and he says, that one is the Lamb of God. Now, when it comes to the Lamb of God, I'm sure you guys are very excited. Oh, my goodness, the Lamb of God is walking by. When, when people saw Jesus, they, they didn't see a lamb, did they? They saw a guy who was a carpenter. So what did it mean when John said, there's the Lamb of God? Well, lambs turn up in the Old Testament, which would have been the only Bible that the people there had, obviously, at that point in time. If we go back in the Old Testament to the book of Genesis, in Genesis 22, we see Abraham is on a walk with his boy. Does anyone know his boy's name? He's taking Isaac up the mountain, and they've gone to make a sacrifice. And as they're going up the mountain, his boy says, "Um, Dad, there's no sheep for the sacrifice. And his dad says, don't worry, God will provide. God will provide. And it gets all the way to where his son is bound with rope and on the altar, and Abraham has the knife like this. When a voice comes from heaven, it says, Abraham. And Abraham says, you have my complete and undivided attention. What have you got to say at the moment, God? And he looks up and he sees a ram who's caught in a thicket, and he lets his son go, and in place of his son, the lamb is slaughtered. The first thing we see is that the lamb is a substitute for his son. The second Old Testament story is the story of the Passover. You know, the people of God were in captivity in Egypt. And uh, famously, Pharaoh said, I won't let them go. And God said, well, in that case, I'm going to give you plagues and punishments, 10 plagues in all, until you get to the last one where God says, if you don't let my people go, I will kill the firstborn in every house across across all of Egypt. But he says, I'm actually going to do something special for my people. If you take a lamb and you you slaughter it, 
and put the blood on the doorpost of your house in place of your firstborn, then that blood will mean that the angel of death will pass over this house. Do you see? So what's the lamb in that story? Well, the lamb is a substitute for the firstborn. The third one that we can think about is in Isaiah. It says that all like sheep have gone astray. What do you need to say at this point? Very good. Okay, Baba do Baba, the famous Colin Buchanan song. But what it says actually is that there will be one coming who will die in place of the sinners. There will be a lamb of God who will be offered in place of sinners. And so we see the lamb of God is a substitute, a substitute for the firstborn and a substitute for sinners. So when John says that is the lamb of God, he's saying that one will be a substitute for the sins of the whole world. Well, the disciples of John are pretty interested in this. Much to, I, it seems like John's happy about it. They go, where with that bloke? Where with the lamb guy? And so they follow after Jesus. And it's a, it's a classic scene, isn't it? They, they were, have a look at verse 38. Uh, turning around, Jesus saw them following. I, I get that impression, right? Jesus saw them following. And he says this really holy question. What do you want? Right? What do you want? And they said, Rabbi, which means teacher. It's a, it's a kind of sign of respect and honor. And then they ask him this really unusual question. They, they ask him, where are you staying? Now, they don't ask him, hey, Jesus, why don't you give us a little pearl of wisdom? Why don't you teach us how to pray? Hey, Jesus, why don't you explain the scriptures to us? They say to him, where are you staying? And our brains go, well, what, why would you ask that? Jesus' response is just as interesting. He doesn't say, stupid question, come back next time. He actually says, come and see. Come and see. And we see that they did do exactly that. They, they, they went and they saw where he was staying and they spent the day with him. See, here's the interesting thing. For Jesus, the invitation is into his home and into his life. To be a disciple of Jesus is to be invited into his home and into his life. Jesus hasn't come to run a TED talk for you and then send you on your way. He's inviting you into relationship with him. And so if you're going to be an apprentice to Jesus, well, here's the amazing way Jesus is spoken about in 1 Corinthians. It says, for Christ, our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. Why should we be apprentices to Jesus? Why should we follow him? We should follow Jesus because he alone can cleanse us completely from our sins. He's the Passover lamb. He's the lamb of substitution. So I want to follow Jesus because I can't get forgiveness for sins anywhere else. Now, this is Camden, beautiful Camden from the air. And uh, on, on, on our day off, uh, Carol and I uh, often go into Camden and we go to a place called Squeeze and Grind and we have this amazing burger. Um, I think it's changed the name. It used to be called the Camden Fried Chicken Burger. I think it's called the Louisiana or something now. Anyway, it's awesome. And I want to tell you about it because although it might shorten your life, it'll fill your life with happiness and joy and mean you have to wipe your chin a bit as all the beautiful sauce kind of runs. It's just fantastic, right? Now, has anyone had a Camden fried chicken burger? They're pretty good. Tim sent me one this afternoon. He said, look, you reckon that burger's good? I've got an even better burger in Camden. Only serves to prove my point, right? When you find something good, I, I went to their Facebook page, and they've got all these recommendations, right? And, and this lovely lady, uh, Shell, says, um, I've been coming here for a long time and can recommend it to friends and those out-of-town visitors. Do you know what happens? When you find something good, do you know what you do? You share it. 
You share what you find that's good. And Tim told us that he's going to share dinner with us and buy burgers for us, which is fantastic, at the Better Burger place. I'm very thankful for that, Tim, and I have that on record now, so that's great. Um, Have a look with me at verses 40 and following to see what happens next after these guys join in with Jesus. Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, was one of the two who heard what John had said and who had followed Jesus. The first thing Andrew did was to find his brother Simon and tell him, we found the Messiah, that is the Christ, and he brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, you are Simon, son of John, you will be called Cephas, which when translated is Peter. Now, it's worth noting something amazing about Andrew, right? We haven't met either Andrew or Simon Peter yet. But when Andrew is introduced, he's introduced as, have a look, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. That's amazing, right? He could just be called Andrew, couldn't he? But he gets introduced to us in John's Gospel as Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. Here's a thought for you. So what what did he do first? What was the first thing that he did? Well, he went and found his brother. He went and found his brother. That was the first thing that he did. And I wonder, church, I wonder, imagine just for a second that you might not be a world-changing Christian. You might be a faithful Christian, right? right? But here's the incredible thing. What if you, faithfully passing on what you know of Jesus, lead somebody else to the faith and that they are a world-changing Christian? Isn't that an interesting thought? Right? That, that God doesn't have to change the world through you, but you introducing someone else to Jesus may in fact change the world. Andrew's famous for being Simon Peter's brother. How does Simon Peter get famous? Because Andrew introduces him to Jesus. I just think that's so great. So here's the interesting thing, right? We always share what's good. Have you found what's good about Jesus? Have you found what's good about Jesus? How does, uh, how does, uh, how does Andrew announce the good news to Simon Peter? He says, we have found the Messiah. And you guys go, yeah, well, that, that, that's kind of what I thought you would do. Okay, we're not very excited about hearing that the Messiah has arrived, but they were. Messiah means anointed. Actually, it also means Christ. That's what Christ means. Christ means anointed. Uh, Oil poured on is is what Messiah means. Well, why is that a big deal? Why why is someone who's had a cooking accident actually now all of a sudden really interesting to, to, to Simon Peter? Well, here's the thing. In the Old Testament, we see that prophets are anointed. Isaiah in Isaiah 61 says, The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. Prophets are anointed. And then we see in Exodus 30.30 that priests are anointed. Anoint Aaron, God says, and his sons and consecrate them so they may serve me as priests. Priests are anointed with oil. And then we see in 1 Samuel, this in 1 Samuel 10, then Samuel took a flask of olive oil and poured it on Saul's head and kissed him saying, has not the Lord anointed you ruler over his inheritance? Here's the thing. To be the Messiah, to be the anointed one, is impressive. When when he says, we have found the Messiah, what he's actually saying is, we've found the hope of Israel. We have found the prophet, the priest, and the king, the anointed one that all of our hopes and dreams are connected to. See, why am I an apprentice to Jesus? Why do I want you to be an apprentice to Jesus? Well, I want you to be an apprentice to Jesus because we need a prophet to tell us God's word. We need a priest to help us meet with God. We need a king to lead us. And in Jesus, all of those things come together. We follow Jesus because he's worthy of our honor. 
and meets our needs. Well, does anyone know what this is a map of? It's a map of Australia. It is a map of Australia. It's a map, a very, very early map of Australia. You can see it kind of gets a bit sketchy down here. This is like not, not done all of my homework yet. That's, that's what that map kind of suggests. Does anyone know what down the bottom here is called? Van Diemen's Land. Excellent. It's called Van Diemen's Land. Before it's called Tasmania, it's called Van Diemen's Land. And, and do you know what we did with Van Diemen's Land? Uh, apart from the terrible atrocities on the native people down there, who did we put down there? Convicts. Here's a picture of Port Arthur in 1840. Uh, absolutely filled with convicts, the worst people, shipped from all the way across in England down to the bottom of the world and never to be released. What does it mean to be from Van Diemen's Land? Well, I can assure you, nothing good comes from Van Diemen's Land, right? Only the bad things go to Van Diemen's Land. Keep, keep that idea in your head. Have a look with me at what happens the next day in verse 43. The next day, the next day, Jesus decided to leave for Galilee. Finding Philip, he said, follow me. Philip, like Andrew and Peter, was from the town of Bethsaida. Philip found Nathanael and told him, we found the one Moses wrote about in the law and about whom the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nazareth? Can anything good come from there? Nathanael asked. Well, come and see, said Philip. When Jesus saw Nathanael approaching, he said to him, here truly is an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. How do you know me? Nathanael asked. Jesus answered, I saw you while you were still under the fig tree before Philip called you. Then Nathanael declared, Rabbi, you're the son of God. You're the king of Israel. Jesus said, you, you believe because I told you I saw you under the fig tree. You'll see greater things than that. Then he added, very truly, I tell you, you'll see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the son of man. It's a fascinating little circumstance here, a fascinating little exchange between Jesus and Nathanael. Notice again that what was the first thing Philip did? Well, Philip found Nathanael. You see, when you find Jesus, you, you, you don't keep him to yourself. You guys know this, don't you? We, we, you? we don't need to have a banner up that says, give the message of new life. I don't need to remind you to do that because if you find the Messiah, the Lamb of God, you, you'd just naturally pass it on, wouldn't you? great. And so what does Philip do? Well, he says, we have found the one Moses and the prophets wrote about. I have got the answer for you, bro. I have got the one that the whole of the Bible so far has been talking about. It's Jesus. It's Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. At which point Nathaniel goes, uh -uh. <clears throat> stop. Okay. You, you may think you've found something, but I'm telling you, I know for a fact, <laughs> can anything good come out of Nazareth? Nazareth, Nazareth is just it's a dive. It's a dump. Nothing good, comes out of, nothing good comes out of Nazareth. Now, just New Life at Night, I want you to just come with me just for a second, see if you can get this in your heads. We don't ever think of Nazareth except for connecting it to Jesus, right? You with me so far? Good. Okay. Here's the thing. It's famous for being connected to Jesus. But Jesus is so unfamous before this point that really close by in Bethsaida, Nazareth had a reputation for being a dump. Do you know how long Jesus had been living there for? Probably close to 30, 20, 25 years. What does that tell us? 
It tells us that Jesus' adult life before he started his ministry was unremarkable. Do you see? It must have been, otherwise there's no way that you could say this. Because if Jesus was always turning clay into living birds by breathing on them or something, whatever the rubbish that people make up outside of the Bible uh, about Jesus' life before his ministry, none of that can have happened. Because otherwise Nazareth would have been an awesome place, wouldn't it? Go and see the cool guy doing miracles in Nazareth. Are you with me? It's a remarkable statement. Can anything good come from Nazareth? Then we have this awesome exchange. He says, I saw you under the tree before you came. I know that you're a... And and he just goes, oh my goodness. Notice, can anything good come from Nazareth? What is Philip's response? Well, he says, dude, I don't have a great argument for you, but I've got someone for you to meet. Come and see Jesus. Just come and see, come and meet him. And he comes and meets Jesus. This extraordinary exchange happens. And he goes from, can anything good come from Nazareth to, Rabbi, you're the son of God. You're the king of Israel. That's a pretty good turnaround, wasn't it? How does that turnaround happen? Come and see Jesus. Okay. I want to encourage you today, guys, that we need to invite people to come and see Jesus. We need to invite people to come and see Jesus. And you go, I haven't seen Jesus for a little while, so I don't know where to invite people to. Uh, You know this Bible, our Bible that we've got? Did you know that it's got four accounts of Jesus' life in it? Matthew, Mark? You guys are so good, you're on it. Uh, At the back, right, I have this little copy of this. It's called The Essential Jesus. It's totally free of charge. It's one on the back there. If you've got a friend who's giving you grief, why don't you say, come and see? Why don't you read this? It'll take you 45 minutes. It's the life of Jesus. I don't have all the great answers for you. I might not be the smartest, but, but can you come and see Jesus? Did you see? I've, my, my testimony is that as people meet Jesus in the Word, they are changed because he is alive and he is compelling. We, we also see here that we follow Jesus because the one from Nazareth is also the Son of God. That, that's why I'm following him. He's ordinary and extraordinary. Well, many responded to that invitation. I've got a picture here of um, the beach in Bali. Carrie and I were there a while ago, and we saw the, the fishermen coming in from their catch overnight. And uh, it's a hive of activity, right? There are boats being pulled up. There are people emptying their nets into buckets. They're taking the buckets up off the beach to the market because there's no freezers, right? And so what do you got to do? You've got to get on that right now. And then you want to pack it all up so that it's ready for tomorrow. And then do you know what you want to do? You want to go home and snooze because <laughs> you've been working all night, right? So if I meet a fisherman on the beach, he's typically ready to go. He's doing stuff. He's not sitting around for a chat. Well, if we go back to Mark chapter 1, it's on page 1001, if you're following along in the Bible. Um, Mark chapter 1, we see in the verses that follow here, what happens with Jesus as he meets some fishermen? Mark chapter 1 and verse 16. As Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come follow me. Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. At once they left their nets and followed him. When he had gone a little farther, he saw James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John in a boat preparing the nets. Without delay, he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men and followed him. See, when Jesus calls, it's compelling. When Jesus calls, it's compelling. They drop their nets. I love it. It said they cast their nets out, right? Jesus comes up and says, follow me. I, I have the picture. Net down, still out in the water. All right. Where were this bloke? 
It's so compelling. They walk away from their livelihood. They literally leave dad in the boat. Catch your dad. Where with the bloke? Bloke called Jesus. Jesus' call is compelling. And we see that they kept on doing this. They invited others to do the same. Jesus commanded them to, therefore go and make disciples of all nations. And we see in Acts chapter 11, uh, this amazing thing. They, they did it all the way around the ancient world. All the way around the ancient world. In Acts chapter 11, we're told, for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught great numbers of people. The disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. See, what were they told to do? Make disciples. What are the disciples called? Christians first in Antioch. So here's a question. <laughs> why do we want to call them apprentices? Why, why have I gone out of my way to say next year is all about growing and maturing apprentices? Can't, can't we call them disciples? Well, we could. But when I tell you right now, you need to be a great disciple to Jesus. You go, cool. What do I do? Here's why we call them apprentices. I'll take you to being an apprentice. Is anyone an apprentice at the moment or being an apprentice? A couple of you have? Fantastic. You guys can correct me and, and get this right for me uh, at the end. But, but here's the thing. To be a regular apprentice, you need to have a master or a teacher. You have to have somebody qualified to model and show you what you are trying to achieve. You need a master. You need bookwork. In order to be an apprentice, and not just a learner, but to be an apprentice, you need to go to TAFE or do some bookwork, right? So you need the bookwork to stretch you. You need prac work to strengthen you. It's not just enough to fill your head up with knowledge. That's university. But to be an apprentice, right, you've actually got to do something with it, which is fantastically helpful. You're matching the learning and the doing together, right? So you need the prac work. And then you need to do the self-work. You actually need to do the hard work of integrating, hey, what have I learned today in my book and what have I learned on the job? You need to actually put it all together. That's your self-work. Well, what if I told you that what we want you to be is an apprentice to Jesus? Well, firstly, you need to see there's no mastery without a master. You can't just declare yourself to be an apprentice. Right, I'm an apprentice, I don't know, archer. Right? That's a good thing to pop into my head at this point in time. I'm an apprentice archer. And people look at me and they go, fantastic, I'm really excited you're an apprentice archer. Who are you learning from? And I go, nope, just got a, a YouTube video. Isn't that the way everything's solved these days, guys? Right? I've got a YouTube video and I'm going to become an archer. Well, you're not a very good apprentice because you don't have a master. You don't have any bookwork and your prac work, have you got, do you own any bows and arrows? No. Well, how exactly are, anyway, you've got the idea, right? You, you can't be a master, you can't be a master of your subject without having a master of your work. What if we said that we're Jesus apprentices? Who is the master going to be? You guys are going to get this. Who's the master going to be? Yeah, great answer. Okay, so the master's going to be Jesus. Now, if I told you there was going to be bookwork to be an apprentice to Jesus, what book do you think we'd use? Oh, you guys are onto this. It's fantastic, right? So we're going to use the Bible. We're going to use the Bible. What about the prac work? What would we do? Well, we would be people who would give and live the message of new life. It says in James, do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. So if we're to be apprentices to Jesus, we've got to be actively using what we're learning in the book. Well, what would the self-work be? Well, self-work, I think, is prayer, where we spend time integrating the doing and the learning and talking with our master. The self-work is prayer. I want to say to you tonight how I open. I want to say to you, non-practicing equals non-Christian. Non-practicing equals non-Christian. You cannot be a non-practicing Christian. You aren't anything. You're someone who fills out an Australian census form. That's what you are. Right? Tick Christian. That's as participant. 
much of a participant as you are, right? But, but anyone who's genuinely a believer must be a practicing believer. And, and so if I say to you, you to be an apprentice to Jesus, does that make sense? Well, it does now, doesn't it? Here's what Jesus said. He said, a student is not above the teacher, but everyone who's fully trained will be like their teacher. How will I know if you're progressing in your apprenticeship to Jesus? What will you be looking more and more like? Okay, you guys are getting it, right? So if you say, I'm a Christian, my question would be, are you becoming more and more recognizably like Jesus? Not a beard, no, no, no. Your behavior, your language, your attitudes, your holiness. Are you becoming more and more like your teacher? Well, how, how do we respond? Well, here's a thought, here's a thought uh, bubble for you. If I told you next year in your life, what I really want you to do is to be great at karate. Has anyone done a martial art here? Tim, great. Ian? Okay, great. If I told you you wanted to be great at karate, so next year you must be great at karate, what, what's the first thing you've got to do? Well, you've got to go and search out an awesome master, right? Mr. Miyagi, right? You've got to go and find him, okay? You've got to find out someone who's actually really good at it. You've got to get a master, right? If, if I told you you had to be really great at karate next year, it would be no surprise to me if you went, man, I have to be so disciplined. I've got to be waxing on and waxing off. and You know, I've got to be doing all the stuff diligently day after day. How will I ever master this martial art if I never practice it? It'd be great to hang out with a bunch of people who are practicing it too, wouldn't it? And what about this mindfulness thing? Well, if, you, if you're going to get into a martial art, you have to kind of get centered so you can use all this new power that you have wisely in the world. You've actually got to spend time meditating and reflecting. And of course, if you're learning this martial art, I reckon that it would be a good thing, wouldn't it, to teach our kids? Wouldn't it? You wouldn't want to just learn all of that brilliant stuff and not pass it on. And so in your homes, you'd be passing on the things that you're learning, wouldn't you? Of course you would. And because you want to be excellent at karate, all of a sudden you go, hey, you know what? Karate has a really ancient heritage. If I was really serious about it, I reckon I'd go back to the originals. I might even learn some of the language so that I can read the ancient stories and learn from the masters who've gone before me. Wouldn't that be great? I mean, if you're really going to be all in, you'd do that, wouldn't you? So if I told you next year that we were going to be great apprentices to Jesus, you could apply some of those ideas, couldn't you? It would certainly put to shame the idea of being a non-practicing Christian. That'd be a joke, wouldn't it? I'm apprenticed to Jesus. I never work out. I don't really seek my master. I don't know any of the ancient texts. I don't. That'd be a disaster, wouldn't it? So when I call you to be apprentices to Jesus, when I exhort you to do that, we, we can work it out. We can work it out. And so I, I want to encourage you tonight, church, we have a master in Jesus. I want to encourage you to trust and obey your Messiah more and more. When it comes to bookwork, I want you to get to know the word of your prophet. Okay? Now, here's the thing. People have said to me, I don't know how I can fit in reading the Bible. <laughs> does, it, does anyone eat breakfast here? Okay, hands, hands, good work. okay, hands down. You eat breakfast, right? Now, some of you, some of you might sold the, uh, scroll the socials right, at breakfast, right? Some of you might stare at the, the cornflakes packet or whatever it's there, right? Now, admittedly, some of you might be driving, in which case, get an app that reads you the Bible. But here's what I do. Here's what I do. I actually set my Bible up in front of my breakfast plate. And so my brain's always going to be thinking about something. 
But I just get our reading plan. We have a chapter each day. I get my reading plan and I read that chapter as I eat my food in the morning. Is it always amazing? No, but is breakfast always amazing? You just need to eat it every day, don't you? And you get stronger and better. And so there are some days where you go, gee, I could do with some more honey on that or whatever. Sometimes you'll find that in the Word too, right? But eating it every day will make you strong. Get into the Word every single day, church. It will transform your ability to be an apprentice to Jesus, I promise you. And what about the prac work? We need to be following the way of our King more and more. When people meet you, are they meeting an ambassador of the kingdom of God? Are you faithful? Are you adventurous? Are you compassionate? Do you aim to endure for Jesus? And when it comes to the self-work, do you pray to and with your priest? Not just the emergency prayer, gee, God, I'm going into a meeting. I'm really scared about it. Do that one. That's fine. Pray for your friends. Pray for your holiness. Pray for your depth of relationship with Jesus. Make it regular and intimate. Be devoted to Jesus. See, here's the thing. Jesus is calling. He's calling you to an apprenticeship with him. Will you follow him with true devotion? That's what next year is all about. We want to exhort you to be growing and maturing as princes. What I'm calling you to is a Jesus apprenticeship. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, I'm sure there will be people here tonight who haven't yet said yes to Jesus, haven't heard his call, come and see. Father, would you help them to say yes to your son tonight, this week, to begin that journey? Father, for many of us who've been following your son for years and years, refresh us. Help us to be devoted to growing and maturing as apprentices ourselves. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm excited about it, hey. You didn't, you didn't pick that up, I'm sure. Hey, it's question and answers time. Uh, has anyone got a question for me? Uh, maybe arising from the sermon, maybe not. Uh, something that you would like to ask. Tim, if you hold the mic, it'll tempt people to uh, raise their hands and call out and say, I've got a question. Yep, Steve. Is there any significance about the fig tree for Jews or Israelites or what, what's... What a wonderful Dorothy Dixit. Steve, is there any, is there any significance to a fig tree in, uh, in this passage? Yeah. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's said twice. Uh, yes. Verse 48, verse 50, I saw you under the fig tree. Um, you know, Jesus said, when you're under the fig tree, I saw you. I'm yep. just wondering, does fig tree have any significance... Yeah, it's funny. I used to uh, come from I come from a church called Fig Tree, and um, fig, it was in the suburb of Fig Tree, right? Uh, people always misheard it as Victory. You come from Victory Church, right? No, 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 Fig Tree. And then, so, and then people would next say, "Why would you ever want to call your church the only thing that Jesus ever cursed?" Funny, right? Okay, funny. Um, but here's the thing: why why a fig tree? Because God uses figs to describe the fruitfulness of His people. And so when he says to, I think it's Jeremiah, he says, here's a basket of figs, what do you see? And he says, well, they actually look really soiled and mouldy and, and not very edible. And he says, well, that, that's kind of like what my people look like. That's their spiritual state. So the man who's sitting under the fig tree probably is a faithful, fruitful man, I suspect, Steve. I think that's helpful. 
Somebody else? Question arising. Oh, church, come on, you know you have them. We, we have a great time once you ask Tim, yeah, ask her. It'll be a bridging question, Tim. It'll get us to somebody no, else excited. It's a, another textual question. But Go. Feel free to shelve it if you're not prepared for it. Uh, <laughs> oh, is everyone ready to watch me squirm now? Like it's, the stakes so, are high. Go, so Tim. John acknowledges in John chapter, verse 35, 36, that this is the son of the lamb. Uh, in Luke chapter 7, he doesn't know who Jesus is and sends a messenger to ask if he's the son of God while he's in prison. Uh, what's the deal? Yeah, I think that's a great question. So it appears in John that Jesus is identified uh, as, the, as the Lamb of God. John the Baptist says, look, the Lamb of God. And you're, you're picking up in Luke 7 where, Jesus, uh, uh, where John sends people to Jesus and he says, um, are you the one who is to come or should we expect someone else? Right? That's a good question, isn't it? Here's what I think. I'm not convinced that John the Baptist anticipated he would end up in jail. I think he imagined that the pathway was a beautiful pathway where he would prepare the way for Jesus. And so when he finds himself in jail and he's actually about to be executed, uh, I think he is wondering, hey, did I get this wrong? Did the plan of God go astray? How could I, as the one who was going before you, be languishing in jail? Are you really the one who is to come? I don't think that he has been mistaken in John chapter 1, but I think he's having a serious crisis of faith in Luke chapter 7. And so I think that oftentimes there are things that we know about God, right, that are true, and you can find yourself in a valley of personal despair and you can go, is it true? Is it really the case? And so I actually think it's more profoundly human than a moment of... Uh, inconsistency in our Gospels, that it's, uh, it's a crisis for him. And um, I actually, I think that warms the text up for us, doesn't it? Real doubt, real worry in the midst from one of the great, the greatest prophet, arguably. Does that make sense? I think that's the answer. Someone else? Another question? Yeah, Peter. Yeah, really good question. How long did the disciples take to recognize who Jesus is all about? Well, I think it's very interesting because in John's account here, we have a very strong definition from Nathaniel. He says, you are the son of God, the king of Israel. He says that almost straight off the bat. Here's what I reckon. Yep, exactly, Peter. He had a view of the kingdom and the king that weren't what Jesus was coming to do. Yep. And so Jesus will be enthroned... Here. And everyone around him was waiting for a golden throne in Jerusalem. And so when these guys go, you're the Messiah, you're the King of Israel, their picture in their minds was victory over the Romans and political power for Israel. And it wasn't going to work out that way. And so when did they realize? I honestly think, Peter, all the way through until they are in the resurrection room with Jesus, they had no idea. I think they had no idea. They're fishermen, yeah, absolutely. And tax collectors and zealots and a variety of other people. So, but I think it's a great question. So I think he speaks truth here, but he doesn't understand it. Yeah, I think that's a great question. So one more? Yes. Yes. 
So you talked about the Jesus apprenticeship. Yeah. And for the bookwork, you said the Bible. Yes. But um, where specifically in the Bible? Because, like, you know, sometimes you read from Genesis and it's really dry. <laughs> so it's like, yeah, no thanks. But yep. um, So where specifically would you suggest to look at to learn and grow? I think that's a great question. It's a really helpful question. Um, when I was a little boy, I might have told you this before. If I, by the way, if I ever tell you stories you've heard before, just throw something at me or go, heard it. Okay, that's good. That's good. Okay. When I was a little boy, when I was a little boy, my, um, my life group uh, leader, my, my Sunday school teacher, was a guy called Rolf, and um, he could throw tennis balls a long way. Still good. Okay, this is great. I'm sure I've told this multiple times. Anyway, as a little boy, I looked up to Rolf, right? And I just thought he was the best because he cared for us and he taught us the Bible and he could throw tennis balls a long way. Anyway, he said to me when I was in year six, Stuart, you need to be reading the Bible every single day. And I went, well, you can throw tennis balls a long way. I'm going to do it. And so I did. So from year six, I don't know, how old are you in year six? So for uh, 32 years, I've been reading the Bible every day. Um, Here's what I know. There are some deadly boring bits. Honestly, the only way I got through one and two Chronicles was listening to it, so someone was reading it to me. I just, it's amazing. But here's the thing. If you want to know God, he is revealed in Scripture. And whatever else you learn, wherever else you travel, if you meet God in the Bible, all of the Bible, so that you can say, I have read the Bible, I will say you will know God. Now, here's what I'd say. Start in James. It's really fun. Work through the epistles, the, the letters in the New Testament. Okay? So start with James. It's short, pithy, practical. Go there. Keep your finger in one of the Gospels. Keep reading about Jesus. And then, you know how our Bibles have got an index page? If you've, got, if you've got a physical, has anyone got physical Bibles anymore? Anyway, start drawing on your phone if you need to. But, uh, but here's the thing. What I used to do was I would, I, would write, I would tick off all the books of the Bible as I read them. Okay? If you stay with our reading plan that we have, have as a church, I'm carefully taking us through all the Bible. And in fact, since we started it, we've now gone through every single book of the Bible. Okay? But my, my encouragement with you, cross off the books as you read through them. And some of them are easy. Some of them are one-chapter books and say, yeah, I'm smashing it. Only 65 more to go. You know, Do that, right? Clean them up one at a time until you can say, because I think it's so powerful apologetically. What, what I mean is when you're talking with non-Christians, and someone says to you, you're really a Christian, are you? And say, yeah. And they say, have you read the Bible? And you go, some of it? That is such a weak answer, isn't it? I'm a Christian and I've never read all the Bible. Because I've got to tell you, read the Bible. And here's the thing. I love who God is in the Scriptures. Love it. I see him be angrier with sin than I could ever imagine. I see him being more gracious with sinners than I could ever imagine. And the God I worship is filled up with 66 books of knowledge about him. And so I want to encourage you, it's really, it's a discipline, it's a life habit. And I think that the trick is we want every day to be transformational. Oh God, that was such a precious word for me. And that's good and sometimes it happens, right? But if you solidly keep reading through, you'll find joy in Ezra, where I am at the moment, you, you'll, find, you'll find it in unexpected places. And do you know the joy of finding these little jewels that are hidden in there? You just go, this is amazing. My God's talking to me today. So, long answer. Sorry, sorry, stopping now, stopping, stopping, stopping. Read your Bible. Start, start in James. Keep a finger in a Bible, keep, uh, gospel. Keep reading through Jesus' lives. And then branch out to the epistles in the New Testament. 
that sound all right? When you've done that, come find me. I've got more exciting things for you to read in the Old Testament. Is that all right? I'm going to stop now.